Hello, and welcome to the Blog Solid podcast with Yael Tamar, where we talk about the evolution of blockchain and the property market, the newest technologies that enhance and revolutionize the world of real estate as we know it, and how we, the owners, the buyers, the renters, the investors, and the entrepreneurs can benefit from it all. I'm Yael Tamar, CMO and co-founder of SolidBlock, pioneer in real estate tokenization. And today I'd like to welcome a very special guest, Chow Chen Zhang. Hi, Chow Chen. How are you? Hey, yeah. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Good to see you. So I want to talk a little bit about your impressive bio and then we'll chat. Is that okay? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. All right. So Chow Chen is a solutions-driven senior executive who focuses on finance, investment, and technology. He has remarkable achievements in designing transformative innovations in capital markets and was listed as one of the top 100 blockchain influencers by Lattice80. That's how I met Chow Chen first. We met at a blockchain conference in New York City, didn't we? Yeah, Exactly. So I know Chow Chen very well now as the president of Fintech for Good, leading the design and implementation of its strategy to introduce the most disruptive technologies in frontier markets. He's also the co-founder or co-chair of the World Digital Economy Council, which mobilizes resources and brings together global leaders to provide thought leadership and implement powerful initiatives in advancing global digital transformation. As a trusted figure in the capital market, Xiao Chen's been invited countless times to partake in high-level discussions, international forums as a speaker, and produce blockchain and fintech shows. He's worked with many portfolio companies in launching new offers, entering into new markets, and building transformative collaborative initiatives with the most reputable organizations from all over the world. So, Chao Chen, thank you for coming on Block Solid today. How are you doing? Good, and thank you for the invitation. And I'm very excited to have this conversation. Yeah. Amazing. So we're almost at the end of 2020. How would you summarize this crazy year? Yeah, one of the reasons why I'm excited about this conversation, because this is basically also a year review for me and also for Finta for Good. And it's as you know, you and others know that it's a crazy year and we are still in the global pandemic. And we're seeing that, you know, many SMEs are being impacted negatively and then their job and also their business are heavily impacted. And for us, that's interesting from my personal side that I don't need to travel around the world. And as 2019 or as 2018, you know, from that perspective, it's good for me. And I can spend more time with my family, with my daughter. And this is also a year that we started to really looking back at what we did before and also using the time to take stock of all the assets what we have and bring new assets into our portfolio and looking at new strategies beyond the pandemic. Right, absolutely. But the interesting thing is that while pandemic was really bad for a lot of developing countries, for fintech, we could probably say that it was a catalyst and a transformative force that moved a lot of the necessary pieces to create a better and more cultivating environment for digital assets. Wouldn't you say so? Yeah, definitely pandemic creates a lot of new opportunities for innovators. And that's not only in fintech, but more broadly for the digital economy, where that's, uh, you know, during the pandemic and many new concepts were introduced, uh, such as touchless economy, 
all such as digital economy and all you know post COVID-19 era, and where that's you know everyone just looking at a new imagination, and which are enabled by digital technologies. When we just look back twenty years and for internet or the other you know technology, mobile have just created a new reality for the global development. And we see the adoption. We also see that how those technology really enable the new emergence of new models, which reduce the cost and also make the development project more effective. And now, you know, when we are looking at what we have now, it's incredible. We are not only just you know more and more technology becoming mature, like the internet, like mobile. And then we also have new emerging technologies such as blockchain, such as AI, such as、uh, you know IoT and other technologies. Within COVID nineteen, and it's very clear that、uh, if your business model is not COVID nineteen proof, and probably you will have negative impact by pandemic. So there, that all the businesses are looking at opportunities generated by the digital technology and thinking of and also designing new models how to make their existing business digitalized and then. Offer service or continue their service to the clients, and I think that creates a huge opportunity for the fintech space. Absolutely, I think now is a good time to start coining new terms. You know, like post-COVID economy, maybe pand economy. You know, digital pandemic transformation, things like that. You know. Yeah, exactly. Like you know, in the U.S., that we have the political transition, and for Biden's administration, that one term was you know interestingly used as building back better. And I、oh. think the BBB initiative is really definitely one of those initiative which will enable a lot of new emerging technology to be included in the bigger. You know, building that better initiatives. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, actually, that makes me think about back in 2012, the Jobs Act, right? And I just actually had a quick conversation with David Wild, who is the father. He's considered to be the father of the Jobs Act, but it was, I think, it was an Obama initiative, right? And it paved the way for what we're doing right now at Solid Block, the tokenization, allowing. You know that was basically an SME boost initiative, helping companies gain financing better. And one of the ways in which that was done、uh, was to allow them to issue securities privately, and yet securities that could be traded, tradable, right? So, long story short, eight years later, nine years later, we're here and we're using blockchain to actually facilitate these transactions. And I don't even know if that's what they envisioned initially. I'm sure David did, but I don't even know the government realized、uh, the impact of what that's going to have. Yeah, I think the novelty of the Job Act was really to address the existing challenge. That is the access to finance challenge, and also the challenge for the crowd to take advantage of the opportunities. As we all know, that from the UN report, from you know all the studies, access to finance is one of the key barrier for SME to grow in any country, not only in the developing country but also in the developed countries. Yeah. The reason for that many times is because SME don't have platform, and banks are typically not in favor of businesses which don't have platform, which don't have long time reputation or or long term transaction. With that, you know, SME really have very limited ways to raising fund. Then we look at the other end. That's you know, many of the 
lucrative opportunities, which are only offered to larger investment institutes. And many of the individuals are excluded from those opportunities, which also create a lot of disparity in the growth. So Job Act really, you know, was introduced with this, you know, both side in mind. On one hand, and help SMEs to tap into new investor pool and who are really taking risk in a different way and they have different appetite to risk. On the other hand, that's really looking at individual or crowd investors and how to make democratized investment opportunities be available for individuals, for crowds, and then they can really just also benefit from the economic opportunities. That's really cool. I mean, I hope that the new government is going to introduce similar things, right? And to make financing even more accessible with initiatives that democratize the market even further. So another thing that I thought about when you mentioned this fourth digital transformation and the companies that are not innovating enough, staying behind is yesterday, you know, you said you have a young daughter. I was probably too young to, you know, to be read uh, serious books to yet. But I'm reading, I have a five-year-old and I'm reading him this book on dinosaurs. And at the end of the book, you know, they have very, very sad two pages where they show a lot of dead dinosaurs. And I was like, wow, is this appropriate for a five-year-old? And then, you know, it says there, you know, that certain dinosaurs died earlier. So the vegans and, you know, we're vegans. So I'm like, oh, wow, the vegans were the first ones to go. The vegetarian dinosaurs were the first one to die. And then went, uh, you know, a little bit after went the carnivores and then just the cockroaches stayed around. So, you know, I guess the less versatile animals, right, the ones that are focused on on one thing, you know, and doing servicing one specific customer are dying first. So you can even within the real estate industry, you can look at it like, you know, this is a commercial space that's servicing offices and offices are suffering a lot, right? So a lot of these office buildings are becoming versatile now, more versatile in in servicing customers in different ways to survive, right? And a lot of them are rezoning. So there's also a lot for municipalities to think about. So that's something that actually I want to segue into next is to talk about what you're doing, you know, interesting things that you're doing with FinTech for Good, one of which is this sustainable housing initiative of which I've been a part of for the last six months, which was super exciting. So first of all, talk about uh, FinTech for Good and why you started that. And are those two terms even, you know, can even exist in the same name and the same sentence and how you segued into the sustainable yeah, thank you for the question. I, this is just, again, bring back to at least the five year, if not longer, and of my thinking around technology and the development, because uh, it's very clear that, uh, you know, we link back to your story. We see that uh, if a development model just uh, follow one path, and it will just uh, continue to just uh, have those underserved and, uh, you know, all unserved even people, stay in poverty for much, much longer. So we definitely need to just looking at different type of technologies and which can bring us different innovations, which can address the challenges specific to different demographics. And one good example is for the people in the rural area and in the development terminology, we always call, you know, the bottom of the pyramid. And if you are a development agency or if you are a commercial entity and it's to serve the clients in the urban cities with a much higher income, 
or to serve somebody who are located in the remote areas and which doesn't have any access to any modern technology, no cable, no broadband, no electricity. And, you know, when your mission is to really help those underserved and unserved, and then you cannot just looking at the textbook, see that these are the options. You have to find new options. And before FinTech for Good, I was with World Bank and I had opportunity to work with many countries. And I saw with my own eyes how daunting the challenge was. And also just have already seen a platform like Kiva and how they just use zero interest loan to just provide finance to those underserved community. And I saw, you know, Grameen Bank who just using new models to just provide loan to the community who have never received any financial service before. And those kind of, you know, models I see with new type of model where that you can really tap into those communities you want to serve in a different way. But of course, that you want those models to just have the second generation, the third generation, and which can also serve much bigger population. And where that's exactly where the idea of FinTech for Goods was born. We see tech can benefit the bottom of the pyramid. And then it's really just go to the tech. It's interesting to see at an early stage, many of the tech company don't have that for good mindset. So although they probably have some for good kind of elements out there, but they didn't go deep to explore that opportunity. So then as, you know, FinTech for good and our mission is really just, you know, for both sides. On one hand, we helped the technology company to go deeper and explore how to just make their, you know, technology not only to serve the commercial purpose, but also serve those underserved and do good for the world. On the other hand, that we also want to bring those, you know, for good technology to the, you know, public sector, to the international organizations and make them available for the development community and create a story and pilot new solutions and also make sure that the emerging technology becoming one basket of options which can be looked upon by the government, by public sector. And then, you know, innovation can really just lead to, you know, large scale transformation globally. Wow, that is really cool. I haven't thought about it this way that companies are not considering, you know, the for good factor, the social enterprise factor when looking for business models or thinking about how they're going to make money even from the developing countries. So I think that what you guys are doing is, and specifically what you're doing, Chao Chen, is revolutionary in that sense. And especially if we're able to at least change the corporate mindset in that direction. So that's awesome. And tell me more about how you started the Sustainable Housing Initiative. Yeah, that's a very interesting initiative that, uh, you know, as uh, you can see from my background, that I have not worked on housing project before. But through interaction with the public sector and also with the blockchain and innovators, I heard many times how blockchain can help to solve housing problems. And I heard from the, you know, the public sector and there are quite a number of barriers which need to be addressed if they want to just meet the market gap, especially, you know, to provide housing to those underserved communities. And one, on one hand, Many times that you find 
those communities don't have a land title, and without land title, that、uh, they cannot really, you know, leverage the property or asset they have for funding or for other opportunities. They cannot participate in economic activities properly. And also, you know, we are building the house the way how like a hundred years ago, and a lot of process are really redundant. And the reason why the housing is too high, housing price too high, is because of those processes. You know, still remain the same as a long time ago. And I do see opportunities how blockchain can really take away some of those costs and add transparency and reduce the cost, reduce the time spent in the housing value chain. And I also see that with tokenization. And other technology potentially that we can really add liquidity to the you know housing asset, where that's also enable many of the new investors who didn't have the opportunity to just be able to participate in the housing project. So with all that, you know, definitely using sustainable housing accelerator is the idea to address the gap I mentioned. Of course, that's you know, as I said, that I don't have a huge background in that, and I need help. Where that's、uh, you know, FinTech for Good has around fifty some advisors and also fifty some global fellows, and I reach out to our advisors and the fellows and shared with them about exciting challenge that we really want to take on to address. And I got very positive feedback from you, from Anne, from you know many of the current task force member. So that's you know how the idea changed from an idea to becoming an initiative. Because by the end of the day, it's the people who can make the change happen. So with you have a solid background in the tokenization, we have other. You know,、uh, task force member from the real estate financing, from the building side, from the legal side, and also from the investment side. I think you know we have really a very strong group, and where that we in the past eight months, where that you know we continue to engage with the community, and also now that we have launched a few. Global roundtable. We have the housing block. We also build a blockchain for housing database, and to showcase all the you know marvelous innovations which are happening in this space. Hopefully, that we can bring those innovation to municipalities and public sectors, and get them interested, and then started to working hand in hand with innovators to make housing affordable and eco friendly. Yeah, that's really cool. I think that. You know, this is one of the initiatives that I personally really like because blockchain has a lot of different use cases, and yet very few of them have been implemented and have been very useful to, you know, society as large. One of them has been payments and、uh, ways immigrants send money back home, for example. So that's a perfect place where. Intermediaries are not necessary, and you can save people a lot of money, and it can save lives literally. So, like you mentioned, in the sustainable housing space, we can also reduce costs and improve transparency, and improve the value chain and the supply chain and everything to make housing more affordable. So, I really applaud that initiative, and I love it. So I want to go back to fintech for a minute, and I know that you're big on blockchain and also crypto. So tell me more about how you think blockchain and crypto 
will influence the fintech industry in the next decade? Yeah, and let me start from crowdfunding because、uh, you know that was one of the early fintech innovations, and the reason crowdfunding was still like not at the scale that we hope to to see. The reason is very simple because crowdfunding is really still not cost effective, and the participation is still you know very limited. The cost of participation is still high, and that make a lot of crowd. Who don't want to join crowdfunding revolution, and in the meantime, it also just constrain those campaigners who want to use these innovative tools to, you know, leverage this new group of the pool of investors. And blockchain and tokenization definitely just address that challenge perfectly, because you don't need to have a bank account to just invest other, you know, token-based project. You don't need to just pay the intermediary platform a large fee to just giving money or invest in a project. And you, addition, when you just you know make that investment, all the transactions are recorded on the blockchain. That、uh, you know the fraud related crowdfunding activities can be avoided. And of course, that's based on the earlier experience. You know many of the bad apples. <laughs> In the crowdfunding space,、uh, run away with the crowd investment or crowd loans, and with the you know token-based initiative, where that you know many of those initiative can just have a, a multiple signature type of new technology-based arrangement, which just make such kind of individual bad behavior to be avoided through a technological innovation or design. So I think in general, this is an example how blockchain and tokenization can help for one type of fintech. Then we move to you know no matter insurance, mobile payments, and also the reinsurance, also the space capital market, and where that blockchain and the crypto have already created a lot of exciting new inventions or new solutions. And we see, you know, JP Morgan issued their, you know, JP Morgan coin, and we see that several countries issued their central bank digital currency, and we see that, you know, Shuidi, which is a China-based insurance mutual insurance or crowd insurance company, and which already becoming billion-dollar business. So with, you know, blockchain tokenization, we do see that many of the Fintech can really be upgraded to the next level and to be competitive, you know, in on one hand, but also to be more accountable on the other hand. All right. So, talk a little bit more about the central bank or government issued digital currencies. Do they have an opportunity to impact people's lives to for the better? Yeah, absolutely. I think this is definitely you know、uh, one of the initiative which.、Uh, Will have transformative impact in every people's life, and as we know that in the international monetary system, there's not much of、uh, innovation happening, and the reason is also simple. This is community which is、uh, or should be more conservative than any other community because you are really dealing with、uh, every people's pocket. So that's why there are a lot of inefficiency. And also high cost. And during 
COVID-19, we have seen that the drop of uh, the cash usage dramatically in almost all countries. And on one hand, that you have many people who just uh, don't have uh, ability to just, you know, do transaction during COVID-19. On the other hand, you see that excessive supply of uh, paper money in many countries. And then, you know, when you're just looking at uh, the government uh, initiative during COVID-19, and in the U.S., in many countries, the government uh, just send the direct, uh, you know, payment uh, to the citizens to help them to, you know, survive COVID-19. And many times you see that uh, there are delays and also there are potential fraud or errors. And many, you know, individuals uh, who are supposed to, you know, receive that uh, funding and then continue their, you know, operation or continue to bring bread to their table, they they can't. And when they just go back to to claim and then there's, uh, you know, not only the process is longer, but also many times that's, you know, there's from both sides, you know, who is liable for the mistake or errors out there. But with, you know, central bank digital currency and for any individual citizen who have a digital wallet and yeah. the government can send the legal tender into their digital wallet. And that's, a, you know, transaction being recorded you know, on blockchain or on, you know, their, no matter what technology they are using. And then there's no error. And also it happens real time. So then anyone who needed the money right now, then they can receive it without uh, having to bear the transaction cost and a transaction time. That's really interesting. Although you're turning a central bank, which governs certain policies, right? Fiscal policies of the country, you give them more of a consumer focus, right? You give them the actual banking functions, even though it's literally not a bank. I don't. It's a misnomer, right? It's, it's more more of an authority. So that's really interesting because it's funny that a lot of the banks are also transforming, right, from their traditional function of just kind of storing money for the more poor people and investing money for, you know, higher net worth individuals into more of a custodian and kind of like a distributor of different services connected with finance. So I find it super interesting. But I like what you also said about China. And a lot of us in the industry don't understand China very well. It seemed like China was anti-blockchain and all of a sudden became very, very pro-blockchain. Crypto is somehow, seems like it's somehow in the gray area, yet the government is promoting their own currency. So can you just give us kind of this overview of what's happening in China when within this space? Yeah, I first want to address the misperception because, you know, China has never been anti-blockchain. It was very clear from the beginning of the emergence of blockchain as a term and the blockchain was always, uh, you know, being promoted by the government, uh, you know, in the sense that they see this will, you know, have transformative impact. And so, you know, in the government document, uh, especially the, you know, China's five-year plan, it was already included in the China's five-year plan. So government also just had a lot of initiative from launching the blockchain standards related initiative to just having incentivized innovators or private sector to just develop the blockchain-based innovation for different sectors. There are a lot of initiative around that. And the misperception here was many China was very clear about cryptocurrency and especially using cryptocurrency to raising funds. 
And, uh, you know, in, I think, uh, 2017 or 2018, I forgot, uh, you know, yeah, it was very clear that, you know, Chinese government announced that ICO is illegal, initial conference is illegal. And also, other than, you know, the legal tender of Chinese RMB can be digital currency and uh, no other digital currency should be called as a digital currency. So in that sense that, uh, you know, yeah, China, Chinese government has very clear policy signal. On one hand, they welcome the blockchain innovation. On the other hand, they want to limit or even remove the risk using cryptocurrency to raising fund. And uh, many times that you see fraud, you see, you know, a lot of misuse of money. And you also see a lot of data coins from beginning is a bad project. So from that perspective, that's, uh, you know, the Chinese government really just to try to say, send a signal to the market, you know, where do they stand? Yeah. Yeah. What about tokenization? Do you think that security tokens are going to be embraced? Uh, yeah. Again, for tokenization in China, it's very clear that there are already a lot of token-based projects and which are used for different type of transaction-related innovations, like in trade finance, like in supply chain management. So there are a lot. And the token side is, uh, you know, being used as a part of a bigger blockchain initiative. And if token is important for that blockchain innovation, and it should be there. But using token to, again, raising fund, this is still an area which is not clear yet. It is clear that using a token to just do traditional ICO is illegal. But for security token, there's still space because for the security commission and a banking commission in China and how to deal with, you know, this as a digital asset or as a security or, you know, using this to, and I do see that there could be potential way to do that. And just, you know, last month that we work with the Kong Strait from Hong Kong to launch that, you know, digital asset and security award. That's a global award and which was supported by the Hong Kong government. And there that's, you know, we already see that the first company already, you know, received the license to just operate secure digital security. So, you know, how this will just be translated or impact process within the mainland China, and it's, you know, yet to be seen. But, you know, as again, that two years ago, three years ago, that Hainan province was taking as the digital economy freight trade zone. And for the freight trade zone, they have introduced, a Chinese government introduced a lot of new initiative and uh, also there is a possibility for different, you know, sandbox and pilots and to see how to just really incentivize innovation, but in the meantime, to just control the risk associated with security or digital security. Yes, I was actually going to ask if there are opportunities for startups like ours to enter a sandbox environment in China and really explore this market together and make the regulators familiar with what tokenization is and start trusting it. But you're saying that they do have a free trade kind of uh, province where we can approach that. In Hainan province, in many like Chinese cities or provinces, there are, you know, such innovation initiative where that's like in Shandong province, there's also the blockchain hub in Qingdao and where that they also introduced the sandbox. There are, you know, multiple cities who have sandbox out there. 
And I'm pretty sure that your work will be welcome there. And also you have the opportunity to work with other innovators to just collaboratively with the government to see, you know, how this could just benefit a large population. Yeah. All right. Amazing. It's time to learn Mandarin, I guess, or maybe Cantonese. We'll look those provinces up and decide. Okay. So even before COVID, data seems to show that millennials and other younger investors aren't buying homes, right? So how can blockchain make real estate more accessible and inviting to this demographic? Yeah, I think number one is really, you know, the millennials access information in a different way. They are born digital. So, you know, many of the blockchain company already just, uh, you know, started uh, gamification of real estate. And one of the company I advised before that, uh, you know, then they have uh, basically they digitalized the real world assets buildings and then provide that uh, the investment opportunity and a digitalized uh, tokenized uh, world where that uh, you can just, uh, you know, based on the first floor and uh, the real construction. And then you can just, uh, you know, build the second floor, third floor or more buildings. And it has, you combine the real world with the digital world. And then the videos can participate and have a sense of what does mean by real estate investment, how this will impact me as an investor, how this will impact others as potential renters, as, you know, also the homeowners, you know, they already have the experience before they just do the real investment in the real world. And second part is that, you know, many of them already have a digital wallet and it's very, you know, easy for them to just invest in uh, token-based assets. And I think that's also make it easier. The third part is that, that I think many of the digital crypto real estate projects are community-based projects. You always want to just, you know, have a community who understand your vision, who share that vision, who want to just even contribute to that vision. And I think millennials in general are born with impact in their mind <laughs> and also are mission-driven. And with a mission-driven tokenized-based project, I think the communication cost for project owners is really, you know, much less compared with other demographic that you may look at. This is very interesting that you just said that the millennials are born with impact in their mind. And I'm, I'm wondering why this is like, I am fortunate to be a part of this group of the millennial group. And it's true, it might be the social media, the fact that you see the impact of your actions, literally, you donate, let's say to a cause, and you can see the impact with your own eyes, and it's easily measurable, right? So I think that would that be the reason why we're so prone to this impact mentality? Yeah, I think it's really, you know, the whole world is just moving to the impact. But for the like the other demographic, they are mature in their thinking when they enter into this phase of the global trend. They have their own worldview before, you know, impact becoming mainstream. So then the impact becoming a competing worldview with their existing worldview. But for millennial, that's they grow, you know, with the trend. They are part of the trend. They themselves are part of trend who push for the trend to becoming mainstream. So that's why, you know, they don't have a legacy they need to deal with. And they don't have a past worldview, which is competing with this worldview. They are born with this worldview. And then they push this worldview becoming more acceptable by other generations. So that's why I think they are born with that. And also they live with that. Yeah. 
That's absolutely true. I mean, for myself, there was one more thing that you mentioned that resonated, and that was the Chinese five-year plan. You know, I for the first seven years of my life, I grew up in the Soviet Union, so I'm very familiar with the five-year planning, and I love it. I myself have five-year plan. You know, our company has a five-year plan. I think it's brilliant, and you know, we're always trying to, of course, do the five-year in three years. Sometimes succeeding, sometimes not. So yeah, I want to go back to the U.S. for a minute. Especially with respect to the regulator and how they always strive to protect the citizens from any dangers of, especially with crypto and blockchain fundraising, right? So, however, I've seen some good news from the SEC lately, right? How is this U.S. SEC looking at crypto right now? Yeah, and I think again that SEC has been engaged in the whole development of the industry. And from beginning, it was very clear that through hard test,、uh, what is a utility token, what is a security token. If it is security token, you know which kind of exemption that you have to go through. And there is a really very clear regulatory framework that the market can take advantage or use. Of course, this industry is new and growing, with a lot of new practice are being introduced day by day. So SEC, I think, has a very good policy where that they are engaging in conversation with the private sector, and they also giving very clear policy signal from time to time to guide the market where are their latest thinking. And I think that is very positive in terms of you know the SEC's reaction to the crypto space. Yeah, right. That's why I also love about the U.S. market is that it's super clear. And it's unambiguous. So whenever we go to work in the U.S. or to attract U.S. investors, there's just really clear-cut rules. And this is what you can do. These are the exemptions you need to file. Yeah, this is absolutely helpful. And I wish every country in the world would be as forthcoming, right? That can be read as misinterpreted. So you know, again, that's we probably you know from a development background. That's you know, one country's practice or. May not apply in another country context. Interesting. To, you know, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's I think it's very important to be recognized. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Every country needs to establish its own policies. I know that some of them look at the SEC kind of as a guide, but the SEC. Way of enforcing, you know, it's a huge country. U.S. is a huge country. It's difficult to enforce rules and regulations, and also there are different ways to detect fraud. There are different ways to punish. So, of course, every country has its own considerations. But what I wish for is for every country to be as clear on the policies that they implement and on the directive. Yeah, exactly. I don't want you to be misinterpreted. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. So, Xiao Chen, our podcast is coming to an end, but I want to hear from. You, what are the few of the projects you're most proud of from your time in this industry? There are too many because you know I just mentioned a few things we did before, and then there are always you know public information. You know we launched the World Responsible Blockchain Championship in 2018, and we recognized ten company altogether, and they are really from different industry and did great job in their own industry. We also have the Blockchain Star program, and in 2019 we have launched like a published 50 company in the Blockchain Star you know work, and we also have our digital assets the lending report, and that report we have around five or six reports, and altogether around 50 some company. 
So, you know, there are a lot of companies that we are proud of. So that's why, you know, I will not just <laughs> give, give names, but uh, yeah. they're all publicly available information. Yeah. You don't want to single out some of your babies, right? Not the- <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Very cool. Very cool. I really appreciate it, Chao Chen. Thanks for uh, your time and coming on this podcast. It was great having you. Thank you for the opportunity. And also thank you for your strong support through the Sustainable Housing Initiative. I know without you, this will look very different. So then, you know, you are instrumental in this initiative. And I also hope that, you know, you will play a much bigger role for in this initiative moving forward. Yes, absolutely. I love it and would be happy to. So thank you for joining. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or by visiting our website at solidblog.co slash podcast. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to rate and review and spread the word. Thank you for listening. See you next time.